Hello guys and welcome to a special edition of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. I'll explain why it's a special edition in a moment, but I want to launch straight away into this week's promo, which is Jess Carter at the Outlines podcast. I'll hand you over to Jess now. This is the Outlines podcast. I'm Jess Carter, and each season I uncover unsolved murders and disappearances in a different county of the United Kingdom. I visit the locations of little-known crimes and collate all the evidence, build up a picture of the victim and the times in which they lived and died. If you want to join me, you can find Outlines on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll map out all the facts, and together we can try to keep these cold cases alive. So it's a special edition because I'm excited to announce that this episode is the second part of a collaboration that I did mention doing some weeks ago that was doing with Jess. What we've done is a while back we discussed a suitable case we could work on and agreed how we'd present it as a collaboration. The initial case we chose was subsequently covered by a couple of other podcasts so we thought we might as well not do that one so we chose another one. So as Jess is a bit of an on-the-scene investigator and researcher plus lives much closer to the area that the case in question takes place also, we agreed that she'd research and present the known facts and events of the case in the first part or first episode of the collaboration and release it on the Outlines podcast, and I'd follow up the second part with some theories and possible explanations about the crime and release it as part of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, with both episodes going out at the same time. That's why I'm releasing on a Friday at 3pm instead of the normal Thursday just after midnight. So when I say this is the second part, before you start this episode, please head over to the Outlines podcast for part one where Jess will explain the case in full or this episode may not make much sense because it will refer to details and events that are touched upon in part one. The case we've worked on dovetails nicely with the new season of Outlines because Jess's show focuses each season upon cases from a particular area of the UK and this case happens to take place geographically concerning areas that straddle both the first seasons of Outlines which concerned Essex cases and the new season which will cover Hertfordshire cases. It's an unsolved case, not too well known, from 1974 concerning the murder of a 39-year-old mother of three Josephine Backshaw, who was found face down, bound and strangled in a shallow pond in the Hertfordshire village of Berry Green. So as I said in part one, Jess has explained the facts and events of the case, been to the scenes in question and given the on-site perspective and the little bits of colour that visiting the places mentioned always makes any narrative so much better in my opinion. So I'll offer no more than a short recap of the case here, for a fuller description as I say, head over and catch part one with Jess over at the Outlines podcast and links to the show will be in the show notes this week. So Josephine Backshaw, mother of three, housewife, places an advert in a local newspaper in early 1974. It reads, Lady, late 30s, seeks part-time employment, own transport, anything considered, previous experience, banking, able to type, and then it goes on to give her a telephone number. Following the advert, Josephine receives a call from someone offering her part-time modelling work, to which she agrees to an appointment. Now this initial appointment that was made wasn't kept by the caller, and nor was a follow-up rescheduled appointment that was made the following day. A third appointment was apparently kept, and it's reported that someone turned up at Josephine's home to take photographs of her, 
dates and times are not reported to when this occurred, but it is claimed and corroborated in more than one source. In October 1974, she again apparently receives a telephone call asking if she can stand in and model at short notice. She agrees and leaves home at 6.15pm on October 29th 1974 to meet up with a photographer in the nearby town of Whittam. Three days later, Josephine's fully clothed body, with her hands bound in front of her, is found face down in a pond in Berry Green. Now this is a substantial distance from her home and a substantial distance away from where she had arranged to meet the photographer, the town of Whittam, which is just seven miles from her home. Josephine had been strangled and a killer has never been brought to justice. So as I say in part one, Jess has recounted the known facts about the case and for my part I'll chuck around some various theories based on these, pose some questions and give my own working hypothesis based on what is known. It's quite frustrating this case, there's lots of things about it that don't add up and there's a distinct lack of confirmed details about the story. There's vague information in many sources and there are many holes in what is reported and available for research that if they could be filled, they may give a different perspective on Josephine's death. Now you may find that it may be a case that there are many open and unanswered questions and lots of theorising throughout this episode, but speculation must remain as it does with any unsolved case. But we have worked with what we could get to bring you this collaboration. So firstly, who was the victim? Josephine Backshaw was a 39-year-old mother of three children, Christopher, Sarah and Emma, and the wife of Clifford Backshaw, part of a family living in a modest but by no means ramshackle semi-detached home in the cul-de-sac of Norfolk Close in the town of Malden in Hertfordshire. Husband Clifford was a mechanic at Ford's Motor Company in nearby Boreham, and Josephine at the time of her death worked as a clerk at the local Malden ladder-making firm Stevens & Carter. Reports are that Josephine had only worked in this position for nearly the past year before her death. Josephine was described as pleasant, hard-working, kind, you get the drift, the usual words that are bandied around whenever the victim of a violent crime is discussed in print or in the media, and these can sometimes be misleading. No one likes to be quoted as bad-mouthing a victim, but to paint a picture of someone who is holier than thou is often inaccurate and a generalisation rather than an honest answer. Josephine was described as attractive and in all available photographs of her she's not an unattractive woman. The shots available are close-up shots and with the clothing that Josephine is seen wearing on them it gives the impression that they were taken some years before, possibly at the end of the 1950s or early 1960s. There are none available from 1974 and it's details like this that help give colour. For example, how did Josephine dress from day to day? Was it conservatively? Was it from a past era or dowdy for want of a better word? Or did she dress with the times? How similar to her published picture was she at the time of her death? Did she have the same hairstyle or look older? One newspaper source even describes police as appealing for a, quote, good daylight likeness of her. It would seem quite remarkable that there would be no more recent pictures of Josephine readily available, as you would think a woman ostensibly interested in being a photographic model would have. Now one adjective that's not used in the many reports describing Josephine is busy, a busy person, and I'd say that this one above others would be the most accurate from what is known about Josephine's life. Besides working as a clerk, and at the time of her death it's not reported in what capacity she worked at this however, was it full-time or part-time? 
Josephine was also reported to be a regular churchgoer and Roman Catholic worshipper, along with her children. She was heavily involved with the church choir, she was the local brownie leader, and she was also a keen Scottish dancer who danced beautifully, according to the chairperson of the local Whitterman District Caledonian Society. So add to these pursuits working, raising a family of three children, all under 13, and running a home as was par the course in the mid-1970s, and busy seems a fair adjective, wouldn't you agree? The murder occurred sometime between Tuesday, October the 29th and the morning of Friday the 1st of November 1974. This covers the period from when Josephine was last definitively seen to when her body was found. At that time of year, it's dark just after tea time and the time Josephine left her home between 6 or 6.15pm on the 29th would have been dark. There's no way to ascertain the weather at the time. It could have been mild, it equally could have been poor weather. I mention this for two reasons. Firstly, because poor weather and darkness can alter a witness's point of view or description. And secondly, Josephine was found face down in a pond. There's no way to ascertain the size of the pond she was found in. Had poor weather and excess rainfall altered the width and depth of it, had she been submerged at first? Now Jess did visit the scene when she was researching part one, and she photographed what's there now but it is, of course, unable to be sure how it's changed in size and depth since 1974. From her home in Malden, Josephine was reported to be going to meet the photographer in the nearby town of Whitham. There's a reported sighting of her in the Collingwood Road area of Whitham about an hour after she'd set off from home, and this is a distance of just seven and a half miles. It's not reported what time she was supposed to meet this photographer at all, but for the short distance to drive, it would take no more than 20 minutes, so the time she left, I would imagine the meeting to be around 6.30 to 6.45. So what was she doing an hour after leaving home in Collingwood Road? It is reported that she was seen in a car park there, or near the entrance to the car park there at the time, having car trouble. The bonnet of Josephine's red Ford Cortina was reportedly up, but there is no mention as to the extent of this car trouble in the press reports available. When it was discovered, it was not reported if the vehicle was drivable or had to be recovered. When asked if she needed assistance, Josephine had reportedly declined and said that help was on the way. Now there's no mention of who this help was, who the person was that had offered her assistance but had been rebutted, and where she had contacted help from. And I have questions here. I would have expected, if I had broken down seven miles from my home in my Ford Cortina, my partner was a Ford mechanic then logically I would have rung home to inform them first, yet there's no record of her having contacted Clifford about this. The person would likely have said also, oh it's alright, my husband's coming, or words to that effect, yet it's never reported what exactly was said in this context of who the help was that was on its way. If the photographer was the help on the way, then he had to have been on a number where she could have reached him at, and as he called her from a telephone box in Great Totham, which is the next village up from Malden, he couldn't have been at any studio at the time, and she would have had to have known a number to reach him on, but one was never found at the Backshall home. If Josephine had broken down there, then she would have used the nearest telephone box to where the car was found to have rung whoever for assistance, and a record of this call could have been traced through the telephone exchange there would have been a definite short time window here to check any calls made against. Equally, if she'd gone to a business premises or knocked at a nearby house, 
it's likely this would have been remembered because it would have been in the immediate vicinity and would have expected to have been flagged up in the subsequent murder investigation. The other sighting, and one that I believe may be a mistaken one, is that Josephine was seen with a man in the Fountains pub in Good Easter, which is the other side of Chelmsford, and this is a good 17 miles from Collingwood Road, and with the layout of roads in 1974, it would have been at least 30 minutes drive away from there. This sighting was about 10.30pm that evening, at some three and a half hours after the sighting of her stood by her car. Now this pub is in the general direction heading towards where Josephine's body was found on the 1st of November, so of course the possibility that it is Josephine and her killer exists. But then equally, the possibility exists that this was a mistaken sighting and was someone very similar to her in looks. If it was her and her killer, then two things came into my mind. Why had she left the car, or at least not called home to report her trouble, and if meeting in Whitham, why then travel such a distance for a drink with a photographer? Which led myself and Jess to consider an option that I will expand on shortly. Much is also made of where Josephine ate her last meal, and many of the press reports available refer to a search for an establishment where Josephine had possibly had a meal with her killer. At the post-mortem, the contents of her stomach showed her to have eaten a meal consisting of white cabbage, baked beans, potatoes, bread and mincemeat. It's described as a Chinese meal in one source, although I've never had a Chinese with baked beans in it. And another source describes the cabbage as being slightly burnt. Now appeals were made far and wide for any caterer that may have served such a meal, and it was suggested to be along the lines of something like shepherd's pie, cottage pie, or even bubble and squeak. Nowhere was traced however, but this does raise a number of suggestions. Did Josephine have this as some former meal with her family at tea time on the night that she died? She had left the home after what is considered the normal tea time, so did she eat with her family? It's not reported whether she did or not before she left. It doesn't seem like the type of meal you'd pay for in a restaurant, and burned vegetables suggest leftovers made into something else, as no establishment would likely serve these to paying customers. Was Josephine held captive somewhere before being killed and was fed this? But if the intention was to keep her captive somewhere and then kill her, why bother feeding her at all? It again just raises questions and is ultimately another frustrating dead end in the case. The next time after this possible sighting in the Fountains pub in Good Easter that Josephine is seen is when her body was found by two telephone engineers and it was face down, fully clothed and with her hands tied in front of her on the 1st of November in the pond at Berry Green. As Jess explained, she'd been strangled and had a cord wrapped around her throat. There was no evidence of any sexual assault, and it was not reported when the most recent sexual activity Josephine had had was. It is not reported as to the presence of any evidence to suggest that Josephine had been beaten at all either. Again, these are points that I will expand upon shortly. Much is made of the photographer in this tale, but the photographer may not exist at all. No test photographs of Josephine were ever found or were passed to her. No one, not Josephine's children, her husband or any friends or neighbours of hers could clearly remember any name of him that she'd told them or had seen him or answered the telephone to him, nor was there a number to reach this man found around the Backshall house anywhere. No one else in the family, nor neighbours or Josephine's friends had spoken to him or could describe him apart from Josephine. It was reported that this photographer had visited the Backshaw house and had taken photographs of Josephine on the lawn, 
but no one seems to clearly remember this when exactly it was or the extent of the photographic shoot and that's an event I believe would have been remembered in a quiet cul-de-sac in Essex in 1974. Just think about it, someone arriving in a car with photographic equipment, doing it in the front lawn where all your neighbours can see what you're doing, and they can see you and describe you. All photographic studios in Whitham and the surrounding areas were looked at and ruled out of the investigation, and also would it be likely that a photographer looking for a model would search classified adverts for vacancies wanted? when there must have been many people more easily available. Surely hiring a photographer's model depends on you being able to see the person in question. No one puts an advert saying, beautiful model for hire, and someone reading it just takes that as gospel that they are absolutely stunning, do they? And would you think, reading an advert that sounds really like someone seeking clerical work, perhaps I can persuade her to model, and try your luck, doubtful. It is also not known for certain what Josephine would have been modelling, was it clothing or cosmetics? Cosmetics has been tentatively suggested, and reportedly a sample of a rare French brand of cosmetic found in her home, but again this line of inquiry led nowhere. This then brings us back to the wording of the advertisement, and the anything considered part of it. Jess mentioned in part 1 being reminded of the book My Secret Garden, which was a study of women's sexual fantasies, written just the year before Josephine's death, and created in part by an advertisement placed in various publications by a researcher who advertised Female Sexual Fantasies Wanted by Serious Female Researcher, Anonymity Guaranteed. Rooks of people wrote in in response to this, and their accounts helped create the book, perhaps because of the two words, Anonymity Guaranteed. So did anything considered in Josephine's advert have the same effect here? Think again about the wording of the advertisement Josephine placed. Lady, late 30s, seeks part-time employment, own transport, anything considered, previous experience banking, able to type. So it was long held that this photographer may have been a sort who had read into this wording and took that to mean that this was some sort of code for a sex contact or escort. They may have thought the inclusion of own car was testament to an escort willing to and showing that they were available to travel for sexual liaisons too. Yet surely for someone seeking sex contacts, there must have been easier ways or in circulation more specific literature for these purposes than the Malden and Burnham standard classified advertisements. There must have been sex contact magazines available or sex clubs that they could go to. In 1974, the Malden and Burnham standard where the advert was placed, wouldn't have had a massive reach. Local papers are indeed that after all, aren't they? Local. And it's also held that Josephine was considered as naive, and wouldn't have realised the connotation such wording may have had when placing the advert. In fact, it's been stressed how trusting and naive she was. No one is that naive, surely. I believe placing an advertisement in the paper would be a last resort anyway. Surely word of mouth would be a better and more practical way to find potential part-time employment considering the amount of people that she would have come across in the different circles that she moved in. So was it to earn extra money for the family where they broke or struggling? Clifford was employed at what I imagine would have been a reasonably well-paid job in the competitions department at Ford's. Plus Josephine worked also, so how skint were the family? An advertisement like that would only have a limited run and it was placed in February 1974 with no way to find how long it ran for before being removed. Not long after this ad was placed, 
Josephine had found part-time employment at Stevenson Carter, it would seem, because she's described as having worked there for nearly the past year before her death. Now, there is another possibility that has occurred. Was the advertisement placed as a cover? Now, I don't have any wish to speak ill of the dead, but the possibility remains that Josephine wasn't the saint that she was portrayed out to be, and she may have been having an affair and was killed in an argument with her secret lover. She reportedly had a full and busy life where she did loads of stuff. She worked in what would have been a male-dominated environment at the time and was a prominent member of a Scottish dancing club nearby, in Whittam of all places, where all roads seemed to lead to or from with the case. It is possible that being around so many different people, her head may have been turned and she may have begun an affair with someone from one of these places, perhaps the dancing club. By all intents and purposes, these places and organisations are often a hotbed of affairs, the trips away to competitions and the constant practice between regular dance partners. It's easy to see how it could happen. You may spend time with a person and an attraction may grow and a clandestine relationship may blossom. Clandestine if you don't want to break up a family or families. And this is especially if it's something as intimate between two people as dancing. So a solution that affords cover is created an advert for part-time work, and a good possible cover story would be, although it may seem a bit far-fetched reading it back now, that you were out on modelling assignments. This would explain several things. It would provide a good cover story for Josephine being nicely dressed and going out without arousing suspicion. It would explain that if her lover was someone from one of the towns or villages in the nearby area, why he'd used a phone box to call in the nearby village of Great Tottenham perhaps a village away from prying eyes and ears at home, and it may also go some way to supporting the accuracy of the sighting of her and a man in a pub some miles from Whittam, so there's less risk of bumping into someone who knew them. It would also explain why there was no trace of any link to a photographer's studio or any pictures produced, because it was just a cover. And perhaps it's possible that she wasn't broken down at all with her car in Collingwood Road, but was waiting for someone at a pre-arranged regular meeting place. When looking at the motives for Josephine's murder, I'm inclined to believe that this is the most likely theory. There's an absence of sexual assault and Josephine was fully clothed, whereas with a sex crime or an abduction, this would have been apparent, and if sex was the motivating factor, then it would have been clear that Josephine had been raped. This is not to say that she hadn't had sex that evening, just that she wasn't raped. If she was with a lover that evening, it's possible that an argument erupted. Perhaps one party wanted to call off the affair, or one party had threatened to tell the other's spouse or girlfriend, and in the course of this heated argument, Josephine was strangled. Now the murder may have been unplanned, which would explain the lack of evidence of other violence, and the killer may not have been thinking clearly when he bound a cord around her throat and tied her hands in front of her. Having her hands tied in front of her doesn't make much sense to me either. Why bind someone's hands in front of them, where a person can still balance if they're fleeing, they can still struggle, or they can even use hands to defend or as a weapon still to an extent? Why not bind the feet also to prevent any escape if restraint is the object? This binding in front may be possible if Josephine was bound whilst in a car. It would be more practical and quicker to do this. There is also the possibility that Josephine was initially tied to something, but what it is unknown. It is also not made clear if the cord around her throat and the cord around her hands was the same one or type, a sizable length and intact as one piece, 
had it been cut into two separate pieces, and why leave the body in a pond? Two reasons I believe are possible here. It was to destroy any possible forensic evidence, or it was to hide it, hoping it wouldn't be found as soon as it was. This may account for the reason her hands were tied in front of her. Perhaps they were tied to something to weight the body down, which came free and remained at the bottom of the pond. It is unclear exactly when and where Josephine was murdered. There is a window of more than 60 hours for this to be possible, as well as a large geographical area where it could have taken place. And again, it's not reported anywhere the findings of the post-mortem to suggest how long she had been dead. Could she have been abducted and held somewhere before being killed? It is reported that her watch stopped at 8.10. Is this damage during a struggle or when her hands were tied? Or is it a result of her body being dumped in the pond? If it is the latter, then Josephine would unlikely have been the woman seen in the fountain's pub later that evening, unless she was held and killed the following evening or Thursday. It's unlikely to have been in the early morning. There would be too much risk of the killer being seen. I believe it's more likely to have been committed on the evening that Josephine left her home. The longer she's alive in the company of her killer, the more chance of them being seen and remembered by someone is likely. So if it wasn't a murder committed in an argument over an affair, then what? Revenge? It doesn't seem like a crime of revenge. If someone has done something bad enough to warrant someone wanting them dead, then I imagine the attack would show more signs of violence and would possibly use a weapon such as a knife. Strangulation is a more personal method of killing. Robbery can be practically discounted. The bag was found with her, she still had her watch on. Why kill and strangle a woman, then transport her 30 miles to a remote pond and not rob her, if this was the case? Or was Josephine in the wrong place at the wrong time and was abducted by a passerby who had stopped on the pretense to help? The chances of that are random. I mean, what would have been the purpose? Sex, most likely. And again, if this was the motive, then sex would have been performed. Now, for myself, it always comes back to this being an argument between Josephine and someone she knew very well, most likely a male lover, and it resulted in her death. It's impossible to name any other suspects, and again, I'm pointing no accusatory fingers here, as there are no suspects that can be identified apart from the phantom photographer, and the obvious one that would have been of course looked at in the original investigation, Josephine's husband Clifford, who has now long since passed away himself. It did strike me that as through any text or sources found when researching this case, there seems to be a distinct lack of mentioning his or the family's grief, although that may be the ex-policeman in me just reading too much into everything, and they may have just been so devastated that they didn't want any interruptions from anybody and to have their grief in private. I couldn't help but be left with the impression that Clifford wasn't too bothered about Josephine in general. He certainly raised no objectives about his wife going modelling with a photographer he knew so little about that he didn't even know his name or where he was from, and he'd even expressed doubt about his authenticity yet he still didn't object to or worry about her heading out on a dark night to meet a stranger, one who he had voiced opinion as to the authenticity of and intentions of. It struck me as very strange. This is where the scant information available frustrates so much. You can only speculate as to the state of the Backshaw's marriage in 1974. Were they happy? Did they argue lots? It seemed very much to me to have separate lives, both doing their own thing, and you don't know when was Josephine reported missing. Was it the same evening she left home, or first thing next morning? Was Clifford used to her coming home late, 
can be out at one function or another or dancing. Even in later years, he was reported as marrying again a few years after Josephine's death, and when his children reappealed the murder in 2009, long after Clifford had died himself, they were quoted as saying that he would rarely talk about it and that he was protective towards them. Was that out of fear or guilt or what? Do you see what I mean about aspects of the case raising questions that you just can't answer? It's near impossible also to profile the killer here, apart from to suggest that it was likely a male with access to a car and very likely somebody familiar with the local area there. I remain of the impression that this was a lover of Josephine, that they'd argued, possibly over a threat to tell his wife or girlfriend, and he had strangled her. Not thinking clearly, he had panicked and disposed of her body and bag at a place that he knew well enough, a lover's lane that they had used before, or perhaps that evening? Somewhere far enough away that there was little risk of them being seen by someone who knew one or both of them. I believe this lover may be from the Scottish dancing group at Whitham that Josephine belonged to, and this is the kind of attraction that may draw people from relatively nearby towns and villages, and it's a pursuit that there's not likely to be too many clubs of around, so people would travel from a sizeable catchment area there. So say Josephine's met a man here, perhaps her marriage has gone a bit stale, Clifford takes her for granted or a distance has grown between them and they've begun to develop separate lives and she gets a bit of attention at her dancing where she was popular and quite celebrated by all means. She responds out of flattery and to feel good and it grows into an affair. Now she wouldn't be the first person to do that and she wouldn't be the last either. It carries on, but it's very clandestine and tricky to maintain, necessitating the cover story of modelling to allow cover for them to be together. Eventually, one or the other tires of the sordid sneaking around arrangements and wants to come clean. A row erupts, Josephine is killed and her body dumped. Of course, this just remains a hypothesis based on what's available. I can't profess this to be the definitive what happened. As I've said, more questions are raised than possible solutions based on the lack of detail available about the case and the investigation. There's a frustrating lack of information on any directions that the murder inquiry looked at at the time, or any reports of suspects arrested during the initial inquiry. There's no forensic evidence reported as being gleaned from the body, there's no discernible murder scene, and there's only a scant few witnesses. Two sightings that have both been recapped in part one and looked at here. Now if the investigation was thorough at the time and all of these aspects of Josephine's life were looked at, then I believe police spoke to her killer without realising or recognising him. Josephine's case was reopened in 2009 following a plea from her children and it was reported that a 68 year old man from the Malden area was arrested about it following this. He was bailed in March 2009 pending further inquiries, but by June 2009 this bail had been cancelled and no charges were brought. There's no further information available as to the status of Josephine's case at this moment. Now this is a sad case to look at because the fact of the matter is that three children had to grow up without their mother. She never got to see them marry or have children of their own and a life was taken, and the reason why is impossible to determine, it can only be speculated as we've done so here. It is possible that Josephine's killer is himself now dead, or if he is still alive, he will be well into advanced years by now due to the passage of time, maybe in prison for another crime, or in a hospital or residential home. 
but it's equally possible that someone somewhere holds a key piece of information that they haven't come forward with, and by doing so may provide the key that will unlock the whole mystery of who killed Josephine Bagshaw and a killer can face justice. However, with no forensic evidence available, and nothing to link the case to it being a part of a series, it would seem that barring a deathbed confession or nagging guilt finally getting the better of someone, Josephine's case will remain a cold one. I hope that the outline's true crime enthusiast collaboration reinforces the fact that it is, however, not a forgotten case. So what do you guys think? What are your theories on the strange case of the Josephine Bagshaw murder? Was she having an affair and killed by a secret lover after an argument? Was the modelling job for real and she was murdered by the photographer? Was she abducted from a broken down car or did she voluntarily go off with the killer? I'm sure you'll agree that there's so much to the case that fails to add up and I make apology if I've come across spouting a load of theories and thinking out loud but that's pretty much all that can be done. As you have heard, Jess herself has covered in depth what is known about the case over on Outlines, and I've tried to outline the theories here that we discussed and came up with. Did you see what I did there? Outline? As best I can here. I must say thanks as well to Penilla, the host of the True Crime Sweden podcast, for assisting in creating this episode, because she kindly translated some audio concerning the case from Swedish into English. That was very kind of her to take the time out to do so and she's assisted in making this episode fantastically. I must also pass on very special thanks to Jess Carter at the Outlines podcast for agreeing to a collaboration with the true crime enthusiast and for the sterling research that she did to provide information for these episodes as well as the many miles that she clocked up driving to the different locations to get that little bit more colour that only being on site can provide. And I mustn't forget to thank uh, Watson as well, Gemma, apparently. I look forward to the new series of the Outlines podcast, which should be starting next week with an especially intriguing case, the kind that Outlines has come to be known for delivering so well, and hope for the opportunity to work with Jess again at a future date because it's been excellent. I should be putting up a thread about Josephine's case in the True Crime Enthusiast podcast discussion group on Facebook. That should be up as soon as you hear this, and I think I can speak for Jess here also when I invite you all to discuss and feedback about the case, or about the episodes in general. Tell us what you've thought of the collaboration between the Outlines podcast and the True Crime Enthusiast. So I look forward to hearing from you guys. I'll catch you next week with another regular episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. On Truer Crime Thursdays, we'll be back there next week. Hope you know the drill by now. Take care and be safe all. Thanks for joining us, and I shall catch you then. I'm Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast, and this is goodbye for now.